I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Coming up this hour, Disney falling short on subs. The stock this morning does follow suit. Why that slowing in streaming is a concern. Plus, two sharing economy stocks getting a nice boost in today's session. We'll dive into DoorDash, talk to the CEO of Airbnb this hour. And then finally, Coinbase ticking higher, takes Doge with it. A lot more on Elon and crypto later on this hour, John. Yeah, let's talk about some of that. Let's start with the future. The mask off trade, those Airbnb shares now rising after a drop at the open as investors turn bullish on the pent up travel demand as vacationers get back out there. And DoorDash close to erasing the month's losses up 19 percent right now. Loyal Dash Pass subs balancing out the return to restaurants and the post stimulus return of its driver supply keeping that stock well in the green this morning. And Disney, sure, it's down today on a subs miss, maybe suggesting more people are heading outside for their fun. But fortunately, Disney parks are outside. So maybe we'll see a rebound there sooner with masks off. I know we're going to talk Disney in just a moment. So, D, got to think about DoorDash here because what a reaction here. It's interesting. They had some trouble, and they attributed this to stimulus, uh, the, the stimulus had people ordering in more, but it also left drivers, the dashers, perhaps less eager to go out there and make a buck. And DoorDash has told us most of the drivers only drive about four hours in uh, or maybe four hours, four hours in a week. It's something really short, really. Uh, and so it's really interesting how the levers get pulled here. They need a lot of people driving to make this work. Yeah, and DoorDash proving that it can really efficiently pull these levers. But, you know, Carl and John, it was kind of thought that both Airbnb and DoorDash couldn't win in a year like this because, one, Airbnb is a reopening trade and DoorDash is more of a pandemic stay-at-home trade. It turns out, though, guys, that we can do things like unmask, get out and travel while still ordering food, watching Marvel shows, even trade uh, Dogecoin. So perhaps this raises the prospect for now that it doesn't have to be one or the other, that the reopening trade and the stay-at-home trade can work because some of the trends that have been accelerated over the last year, Carl, they're not just trends, they're habits that have formed and may be here to stay post-pandemic. Yeah, uh, Airbnb up almost 3%. That's certainly what you would take away from gross bookings up 52D year-on-year, $3 billion above uh, the street estimates. Uh, their guidance, of course, this event coming up on the 24th, uh, most comprehensive upgrade to the service in 12 years. Uh, so, John, we're gonna, it's going to be fascinating to see what Chesky says in a few minutes. It will indeed. And, Deirdre, like you said, I mean, we, we talk about these trades, and, yes, th- there's some truth in aggregate, but there are strategic things that all of these companies are trying to do beneath the surface. And a lot of it has to do with... Mm-hmm core assets. With DoorDash, they're trying to build out this subscriber habit. We see them not quite there on getting more people to order from pharmacy as opposed to food, but that's a key metric to track. And then Airbnb trying to keep those super hosts because the experience is so much of of where the value is, right? 
Yeah, they proved their brand power as well. I mean, Airbnb recovering so much faster than the rest of the travel industry. And as we've talked about before, DoorDash showing a level of profitability, uh, you know, in some ways better than its competitors like Uber Eats and getting that supply back online when some of the other names in the gig economy are having a little bit more trouble doing that. We are going to be discussing all of this, all of those names throughout the hour. We're going to get to Coinbase, too. But for now, let's dig in deeper on Disney, a miss on subs and revenue, driving the stock down this morning. Julia Borston has the breakdown, though. Julia, good morning. Well, Deirdre, though, Disney added 9 million new Disney Plus subscribers rather than the 14 million that analysts expected. Disney CEO Bob Chapek telling me that Disney Plus growth picked up in the last month of the quarter, stressing that streaming and direct-to-consumer is Disney's top priority and that they're on track for their long-term goals. We've added 30 million new households to Disney Plus just in the first six months of the year. So we're extremely bullish. And in fact, this quarter's numbers were exactly as we projected internally. So uh, no, no disappointment here. Uh, I think if you want to look at the actual rate of uh, net ads, uh, we've actually added more in the last month than we have in the prior two months in terms of households. Chapek announcing that after simultaneously releasing movies in theaters and on Disney Plus for an extra fee, that they will give two films an exclusive 45-day theatrical release in August and September. We're hopeful that by the end of summer, more and more consumers will feel free, particularly with the CDC guidelines today about relieving the constraint on masks, that that will uh, give us the ability then to go ahead and return to a shortened window, but at least an exclusive window where we can continue to build those Disney franchises the way that we have in the past and continue to fuel the the growth, not only for our theatrical exhibition business, but most importantly, to our Disney Plus business. It's unclear how much Disney plans to give films that exclusive window in a fully post-COVID world, but it does sound like they're going to do whatever it takes to build that Disney Plus subscriber business. And John, a lot of commentary about how they expect the subscriber numbers to grow as they add more content. So similar to Netflix, this idea that content growth is going to drive user growth. Julia, there's talk about direct-to-consumer here, maybe some concern about the subs growth in this one quarter. But I wonder how much talk there is, even from Disney, maybe even among analysts, about whether they're going to really flesh out direct-to-consumer as an idea, like Amazon has done. I mean, you've got these barcodes from Prime that you can scan in Whole Foods, you know, to get into ghost stores, things like that. When are they going to bridge that direct-consumer relationship into parks to drive traffic, maybe differentiate on pricing. There's so much they could do. Are they doing it? Yes, I I actually think they are, John, and this is a direction they've been moving in for a while. I mean, I think that Disney is unique from so many of the other media companies because it already had that direct-to-consumer relationship thanks to the parks long before people were doing streaming. So Disney already had email addresses, had people buying tickets directly from them. They already knew how to transact directly with consumers. So I think what's interesting with the parks is that, you know, they've moved away from the wristbands, these magic wristbands that they had in Disney World that were designed to get people around the parks faster and and with fewer lines. And now they're going to be launching this new Genie app. That's going to be all about using data 
to make sure people have a, a better experience in the parks. So I think that Disney is going to try to make all of that seamless. So <laughs> you go to the parks, you subscribe to Disney Plus, you can access all the content, you know, through Disney. And th- this idea that Disney doesn't have to go through middlemen anymore. They're not reliant on the TV bundle, the cable TV bundle, which is something that um, that Chapek alluded to. They really want to be able to own that relationship directly. Um, you know, we love to kick around release dates, Julia, and, and the science that is the new window. Um, whether it's Cruella, Jungle Cruise, Black Widow, what is, what is their strategy telling you about what they think cinema attendance is going to be like? Well, I think it's fascinating that the movies for the next couple of months, sort of until the end of August, are going to be available for Disney Plus subscribers for an additional $30 fee and also available in theaters. I think to me that indicates that they think that some people, maybe people with kids who are not yet vaccinated, people with kids will be a little bit more reluctant about going to theaters. But then by the end of the summer, once you've had far more vaccinations, then they think they're going to be able to really maximize an exclusive theatrical window. Disney is also unique from many of the other studios in that it dominated the theatrical movie going business pre-COVID. It had the biggest market share um, by a lot. So now they're going to be able to, you know, wait until they think there's really going to be a movie going audience and then drive people to theaters. Um, they have a Marvel movie coming out. They have a Ryan Reynolds comedy and they're going to that's going to be a really important test of how how big demand is for a theatrical only. Great insight with Chapek, especially, Julia. Thanks. We're going to stick with Disney. Bring in Needham's Laura Martin. Laura, you got a hold on Disney, but here's, here, here's the part that I wonder about. Is Disney more compelling longer term if you believe they're going to be able to stitch together the Disney Plus data that they've got plus the parks stuff and somehow create more insight, drive more business and higher value through that direct relationship? Right. I think you're hitting on the asset that most investors miss, which is the direct relationship to consumers. They've always had connections to their consumers through the parks, and now they have 159 subscriber emails and relationships from their DTC business. So they're going to try to bring you into the Disney fold when your kids are four and not let you or your kids out of that relationship until you die, essentially. So they are trying to find your they're going to have your consumer data and drive revenue from that over decades. What you're describing there, Laura, is this flywheel that another company, Amazon, has been so successful in creating. So if that's true, then. Why the hold? Aren't they going to continue to add more to this ecosystem, get more of our dollars, more of our data? Yep. I just, um, um, you know, I think this streaming service is um, costing them a lot more money in the near term. And this is a company that used to trade on EPS. I've been covering it for 20 years and it just doesn't trade on EPS anymore. But call me an, an old dog hard with new tricks. So the streaming assets are wonderful and they have a lot of long term value, especially in their data. But, um, you know, I would like to see EPS growth as those parks open. What's so funny is we're all talking about streaming today, which is fantastic. But let's recall the CEO here ran parks for over a decade. So I am highly confident that these parks are going to do fantastic once they're allowed to open regulatorily and go back to full capacity. Uh, Good point. We are all talking Disney+. Plus. There is a lot of discussion around parks. Something I'm not hearing a ton about, though, is 
sports. I mean, as sports returns to a normal cadence, where's ESPN, ESPN Plus position? Could this sort of be a bright spot? Do you think that they are able to make big strides in this space, especially, you know, as they get the UFC contract and more live sports moves to streaming? Yeah, the first quarter, Linear Networks, which is primarily ESPN, really, really saved them um, $2.8 billion of EBITDA, up 15% year over year. So a lot of their free cash flow on the positive side coming from this empire is these Linear Networks. And already, as you said, the second quarter last year, all live sports was essentially off. So the numbers start getting really big really fast as we um, go into second, third, and fourth quarter, calendar quarter of this year for Disney because all their sports is going to be back being played and viewing up. Um, and so we're just waiting for venues to open in, 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 in the real world. Laura, finally, I know cruises are uh, you know, co- comparatively a small part of the business, but it does seem to be the epicenter of everything uh, political regarding vaccine passports and testing and CDC scrutiny. Um, I mean, cruises were an issue pre-COVID. We had our episodes. I just wonder how you think they're going to manage it, what their biggest concerns are. Yeah, I mean, I think cruises is probably going to be the last thing to come back. I think it will come back after um, it will come back after theaters. But I think, again, this is just about touch points to the Disney ecosystem. You know, we talk about like the cable bundle or the streaming bundle. You know, bundling in cruises is just another form of consumer immersion in the Disney cult, let's call it. So um, I expect that super fans to take advantage of the cruises, but it's a narrow group of people, meaning you don't need a million people. You don't have room, actually, for a million people here to do cruises. So it's just a narrow, it's the tip of the spear for the most avid Disney super fans. And it's a great touch point for those fans, but I don't think it drives the empire's upside value here. All right, Laura Good Martin, only. thank you. With a hold, but it might be the happiest hold on earth. Imagine. And it only feels like a million people on cruises. Not actually that many. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky in another CNBC first. That is up next. Tech Check is only getting started. Let's get a gut check on Snowflake. Goldman takes it to a buy this morning. Price target 275, which is where it was trading about a month after the IPO. So Snowflake is well positioned to benefit from the shift in data to the cloud and has room to run since we are in the, quote, relatively early innings. There's that innings analogy again uh, of a cloud adoption. Shares jumping nearly, let's see, about 8% this morning, taking it back above the 200 level. Well, John, Airbnb shares, they're also up today about 3%. Its latest results providing more evidence that its model and brand is recovering much faster than the rest of the travel industry. Average daily rates rose more than 30% in the first quarter compared to double-digit declines from the hotels and just 8% growth from Expedia. Revenue also growing again, while the OTAs are still far below pre-COVID levels. Supply or listings, though, remains a key question as demand is expected to surge back. And that's where he started with CEO Brian Chesky. Are they ready for a major summer rebound? Yes, we absolutely do. The key is we have 4 million hosts, 5.6 million listings. 
And, you know, our hosts, we've been working to get them ready. But one of the other things we've done is we've launched a feature called Flexible Dates. What this allows us to do is to point demand to where we have available supply. So we will have, I think, more than enough listing uh, hosts for the coming travel rebound in the coming months. Now, if travel comes back to cities, is there risk of glut in non-urban areas? I noticed in your report that you have expanded the supply outside of cities, but net-net it stayed consistent. Yeah, I think that I don't think I think a couple trends are going to be very positive for us. As uh, restrictions lift, more people are going to cross the border and more people are going to go to cities. But I don't think that's going to be a pure replacement for all the people traveling to vacation destinations, small towns, rural communities. I think it's going to be additive because what we're seeing is huge spikes in searches and demand on Airbnb. And so we think this is going to be a travel rebound unlike anything we've ever seen before. I don't think we've ever in our lifetime seen, you know, we've never seen travel being taken away from the majority of people for a whole year. And a lot of people have a large amount of discretionary money. In a lot of surveys that I've read, including ones we've commissioned, you ask, what's the out-of-home activity you miss the most? Most people say travel. You will see more urban travel, but I don't think it's going to be business travel. I think it's going to be more leisure travel, and I think we're really, really strong in that area. I wonder what makes you so confident. I know you have good visibility, um, but what if demand exceeds your expectations? What if you see more urban bookings versus rural? What makes you so confident, especially when your competitors are working very, very hard to build up their supply? Well, again, if we see a huge spike in urban demand, that would be great for our host and cities. They've been hurting over the last year, but we are still seeing more and more demand coming to the urban area, especially for longer term stage. Right now, you sound extremely positive um, on your outlook for the summer and the first half of this year, but you were somewhat conservative on your guidance for the back half of the year, pointing to limited visibility. Why is that the case? Uh, What makes you think that the rebound could stall or gives you hesitation when it comes to predicting the second half of the year? Well, we're not. We're not. We're, we're, I'm very confident about the second half of the year. And I, again, think this will be a travel rebound, unlike anything we've seen before. Certainly, I've been doing this for 13 years in Airbnb and, you know, never in never have we seen anything quite like this. The amount of people that are interested in traveling. And of course, all this was before a few hours ago when the head of CDC said that now if you're vaccinated, you can resume activities that you were doing before the pandemic. And I think one of those activities that I'm sure people uh, come to mind right before Memorial Day is travel. So we are very confident um, and um, we're going to be prepared for whatever the demand is. You guys broke out longer term stays this quarter, those over 28 days, and they now make up a quarter of all nights booked in Q1. Does that trend continue as economies reopen? It probably does. I mean, it probably will happen is there might be some rebalancing as cross-border increases, as urban increases, and more and more people travel. That could rebalance it a little bit because you're going to see a lot more growth in short term. But over the long run, over the course of a number of years, I think the trend to increasingly people staying in Airbnb for long-term stays as defined by 28 days or longer, it increases. And the reason it increases is because increasingly fewer and fewer people are being tethered to one city to live and work. And so as people become more flexible, more and more people decide that staying in Airbnb is actually a great option for a week at a time, a month at a time, or a few months at a time. If long-term continues and it goes up, what kind of opportunity does that open up for Airbnb in terms of your addressable market and ways to monetize the platform? Well, I mean, the market for living is much larger than the market for traveling. There's no question. Most of us 
you know, travel for a portion of the year and we're living the rest of the year. So I think, number one, most of our market size that we described to investors, especially in our S1, was primarily focused on travel, which is already one of the biggest industries in the world. It is by some measures between 5% of global GDP or even larger. It really depends on how you size it. If you add another category of living, and if traveling living starts to blur, I think Airbnb is absolutely a beneficiary. Now, have you seen the same kind of recovery in experiences that you have seen in home bookings? What are you looking to as an indication that this business is working or isn't? It's absolutely working. And one of the things I'll point out on experiences is statistically, guests are more satisfied with experience on Airbnb even than homes. The percent of people leave a five-star review for experiences is higher than homes. Now, this product has been somewhat on hold. Last year, we paused the entire experiences product because obviously during a pandemic, it's really hard to gather, let alone with other strangers. I remain very bullish over the long term. Brian, are you seeing any evidence of cross-border travel returning yet? We are starting to. Um, where we see restrictions open up, we are seeing the beginnings of uh, some emerging growth in cross-border. I think the next you know, few weeks and months are going to be really, really important. But it makes complete sense. I heard a lot of anecdotes of people being at airports recently, and it's the most crowded they've ever seen an airport in a long, long time. So people are getting back on planes. As they get vaccinated, they are going to be crossing borders. And I think that Memorial Day will be probably a threshold to be crossed. And after Memorial Day, I think you're going to see a lot more cross-border. Exactly when, obviously, that's going to be really hard for me to predict. But we will see the data probably before others. Interesting. What about business travel? Any evidence of that returning? And I know you've said before that it's going to return in a very different way. What are some of the early signs, if you're seeing any? I mean, again, at risk of predicting the future and being wrong, I don't think business travel, as we know it, is coming back to levels that they were before the pandemic. The simple reason why is I think the bar to get on a plane to go to a meeting is higher than it used to be because you can do a lot more. And so what I think this is going to be is not the end of business travel, a change of business travel to longer length of stay business travel and more group business travel because you're going to have a lot of people working remotely but they're going to need to go back to headquarters. Now, I know that you guys cut a lot of your marketing expenses over the last year, and you got a lot of traffic organically, hosts organically too. But as you see greater competition from the OTAs, are you considering upping your marketing spend once again or still the same same outlook there? I think we're pretty different than our competitors, and we have also a quite different approach to marketing. I mean, I think Airbnb, we're one brand. We're not like a house of brands. And that brand drives direct traffic to Airbnb. More than 90% of our traffic is paid, uh, unpaid or direct. Additionally, we have approximately the same traffic now as we did in 2019, but we spent 50% less on marketing. So I think we're going to be permanently more efficient. Carl and John, I think one of the most interesting things that he talked about was that trend of longer term stays. And it makes you wonder, could Airbnb eventually go beyond travel, become a property company. What kind of opportunities does that open up? He didn't bite. I asked him if they'd eventually, eventually displace the property agent opportunities in insurance. But he, he didn't really answer that. It is an interesting question for longer term investors, though. Does that addressable market expand in a major way, Carl? 
Yeah, especially when bookings or a good share of bookings, D, are for more than 28 days, you're essentially in a bit of a property management business. But uh, fascinating and, and what a great interview on, on a pretty impressive quarter, uh, despite what the stock has done since the IPO. When we come back, uh, Dogecoin getting a big boost this morning from who else? Elon Musk. We're going to break down that and talk some Coinbase earnings. In the meantime, watch Unity. Oppie upgrades this morning to goes to outperform says the current level is an attractive entry point for investors looking for a high-growth software stock, and the shares are up 6% or better. Tech Checks back in three minutes. Bottom of the hour here. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Stocks are higher for a second day. Tech stocks leading the rebound. NASDAQ's now flirting with a 2% 2% gain. We'll see if we get there later on today. Some of the pandemic winners that saw drops this week are turning around. Zoom's up six. Names like Okta and DocuSign up nearly four. Let's get a news update this morning and get back to Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. The Coast Guard is again allowing maritime traffic on the Mississippi River that will start to alleviate a backup of dozens of vessels and more than 1,000 barges. The movement was stopped after a crack was discovered on this interstate here between Tennessee and Arkansas. The Coast Guard says that it has determined it is safe to travel under that bridge as repairs continue. The positive effects of government stimulus checks appear to be fading. U.S. retail sales were unchanged in April. A small increase had been expected. The stagnant sales in April, a big contrast from March when they soared almost 11 percent. And New York Representative Elise Stefanik all smiles this morning. House Republicans voted to put her in the leadership post that had been held by the now ousted Liz Cheney. Cheney, of course, has been very critical of President Trump's claim that the election was stolen from him. Stefanik, meantime, has been supporting him. I believe that voters determine the leader of the Republican Party and President Trump is the leader that they look to. Uh, I support President Trump. Uh, Voters support President Trump. He is an important voice in our Republican Party, and we look forward to working with him. And you are now up to date. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks for that. Uh, Take a look at Coinbase getting a nice boost this morning as revenue tripled in its first quarter since going public. Kate Rooney, it's not just Coinbase that's up this morning. Dogecoin, too. That's right. Dogecoin getting a boost. But this was a huge quarter for Coinbase. You had that revenue growth, a boost in user growth. And Coinbase says that it's on track to deliver similar or better results in this current quarter. But Deirdre, you mentioned it. One of the biggest headlines, Coinbase is going to start letting clients trade that meme-based cryptocurrency, Dogecoin. It was the first topic on the earnings call. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong says Dogecoin will be up and running in six to eight weeks. He talked about an approval framework for new coins and looking to add those assets faster, but he didn't give much detail on why that will take up to two months. Part of that need for speed, guys, is competition. There's a lot of new fintech players in the market offering crypto trading for free, including Robinhood. Analysts fear that could put some pressure on Coinbase's margins. CFO Alicia Haas told me yesterday it's great that everybody wants to get into crypto now, but it also, quote, means they need to move faster. She says they could have done more trading volume if they had those assets on their platform, referring to Dogecoin there. Revenue came in at $1.8 billion. Profit for Coinbase, $771 million. That increased more than 20x from a year earlier. Coinbase now has 56 million users, and it saw growth in subscription and services revenue. Coinbase results, though, guys, are still very closely linked to the performance of cryptos. Roughly 94% of net revenue still comes from transaction fees, the company benefiting 
from that bull market in Q1. Executives did strike a sort of cautionary tone, though. They talked about volatility and needing to spend more on marketing to keep ahead of that competition going forward. We mentioned Dogecoin. Coinbase is not the only thing boosting those prices today. Elon Musk, after calling it a hustle on SNL last weekend, tweeting this morning that he is, quote, working with Doge developers to improve transaction efficiency. He calls it potentially promising. Guys, back to you. Um, You know, Kate, the SEC had a headache before dealing with Elon Musk when it comes to Tesla stock. But right now, there doesn't seem to be anything moving crypto up or down more than Elon Musk. And then crypto is moving Coinbase. I mean, uh, how many different things, how many different financial you know, equities or financial instruments are tied to the whims of Elon Musk right now? It is sort of a Russian doll of influence of a Musk tweet going to Dogecoin or Bitcoin. One of the things, so Bitcoin is technically regulated by the CFTC. Um, so it's not the same as if you had Elon Musk coming out and tweeting that he was going to take Tesla private at 420. It's different. So CFTC is sort of in, in charge of uh, looking after Bitcoin. Dogecoin is under sort of a certain regu- regulatory structure. But this market is still relatively new. I don't think they figured out how to sort of police that. And you have influencers, CEOs tweeting about it. There's not a lot of disclosure. It's not just Elon Musk. People on Reddit, Twitter talking about their positions. They don't really ever disclose how much they really have at stake. So some of these CEOs might have more skin in the game than we realize. And Kate, how are investors responding to that timeline that you mentioned up to two months to add Dogecoin? I mean, Coinbase has to be nimble, but they also got to do their due diligence. The reason they received the valuation they did at their IPO and have right now is because they're seeing sort of the gold standard exchange, right? These things may take time. We can't forget that Dogecoin is still a meme coin and created initially as a joke, even if it is being taken more seriously. Yeah, a lot could happen in two months. I mean, we've seen Dogecoin rise almost 10,000 percent this year. You don't know where it'll be in two months. But I asked Alicia Haas about what happened with Binance. So there's reports that they're under investigation. She said that they really have taken pride in being the sort of more regulated uh, gold standard. And that has been, like you said, part of the big valuation story. Analysts this morning are coming out and saying that is Coinbase's appeal is that it is the compliant version of any of these crypto exchanges. So they sort of leaned into that narrative that they want to be compliant. And the whole regulatory structure and framework that they use to approve coins really, really relies on regulation. They have to make sure that these things are compliant. We saw it. They took XRP off of their platform for that very reason. So I think they'd rather be slow here than uh, immediately launch Dogecoin, although they do. It seems like they had a little bit of FOMO on uh, the earnings call. They missed out on that big run up. Yeah, although your point about the uh, the competitors, Kate, is such a good one. Piper, uh, when they initiated Coin today, uh, at an overweight, they make the point that the share, the market share of overall crypto market cap has gone from five to 11 in just a few years. And what is obviously a market growing 8x. So we're going to talk more about who has what amount of share versus their peers. Absolutely. Absolutely. They have seen you saw that rise. You mentioned 11 percent of the crypto market is now custodied at Coinbase. So they they are growing their share. People seem to be willing, at least right now, to pay some of those higher fees at Coinbase to trade there. And they also do certain forms of banking. They've got other sides of the business. I think the big thing people are watching is the percent of revenue that comes from just transaction fees. If that's really their bread and butter and you have others coming in, like Robinhood offering this for free, that could really put some pressure. 
on the company. Uh, Alicia Haas again, though, said that they're really not looking to compete on fees. They're trying to be sort of the first mover. She really tried to sort of shift the narrative from, oh, there's coming in, there's going to be some margin pressure similar to what we saw in the brokerage industry. But that definitely seems to, to be a big risk. Kate, thanks. Our Kate Rooney. And coming up, a closer look at DoorDash's results and why that stock is up 21% this morning, plus a group of former Uber execs, Ghost, Travis Kalanick. We will explain. Tech Check, back in two. said a theme to focus on is unmasking. Going a level deeper on that, a key idea this earnings season for gig and flex economy stocks, supply. A shortage of drivers costing Uber and Lyft $250 million in incentives. An abundance of hosts giving Airbnb an edge over competitors. And this DoorDash stock pop that we're seeing after earnings could be related to the resolution of its driver supply issue. DoorDash uh, saying they're getting drivers back, Carl. And that, that issue where the typical dasher for them works four hours a week. Um, you know, we, we heard from Rahel Solomon earlier that the effects of stimulus are fading in a way that's good for DoorDash, right? Because one of the effects of stimulus that they were seeing is that some of their gig workers weren't as eager to work. That combined with the subscription ecosystem they seem to be building, maybe giving them some value that investors are seeing today. Yeah, it's definitely a pivot point this morning, John. I'm looking at the uh, the upgrade out of Wells today. They went from uh, they went to overweight, and they say that the beat was large enough, D, to offset the rotation to value that has afflicted growth stocks so far year to date. So if Dash is going to be a poster child for anything, uh, you you might want to see it be something that at least re- reinforces some confidence in growth. Yeah, and what's remarkable to me is that DoorDash is already commanding a much higher valuation than Uber, 15 times price to sales versus eight times for Uber. And it's really seen as the company that is able to resolve some of the issues. We've heard Darakaz Rashahi speak about the driver shortage, how they're spending money. They might have to spend more money. But, John, DoorDash just kind of showed us that they put the money in. It did hit their bottom line this past quarter. But they say that they resolved the issue, that they had their Dasher supply back up and running by the end of Q1. They didn't talk a lot about, you know, concern for the rest of the year. And, of course, on that profitability metric, right, even if you want to take adjusted EBITDA profitability, they are getting there much quicker. And one other thing, they are now number one in terms of food delivery market share, convenience delivery market share, and now uh, pickup or takeout. So they are have just found a way to take market share and also do it in a more profitable manner. Carl, here's the next shoe to drop is the impact, if there is one, of this pricing change that they've done with restaurants. They think this is going to make them more competitive where they're giving restaurants more options versus DoorDash taking just 30 percent. They're saying, hey, a la carte, you picked how much service you want, how much marketing you want. You can pay less. You can pay more. If restaurants like that more than they like the offerings from some competitors, then maybe DoorDash widens its lead here and its supply of restaurants. But we'll see. Jury's out. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of restaurants, guys, a group of former Uber executives have launched their own virtual kitchen startup, uh, which is a direct challenge, obviously, to Travis Kalanick's effort. Our Kate Rogers has more on that. Morning, Kate. Hey, Carl, good morning to you. Well, VC money's really flowing to companies in the ghost and virtual kitchen space, which could be a $1 trillion global market by 2030. Virtual Kitchen Co. has rebranded itself now as All Day Kitchens. The company announcing a $20 million Series B funding round, bringing its total funding now to $37.5 million. It's just revealed that DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu and Open Door CEO Eric Wu participated in that latest round, which was led by Founders Fund. CEO Ken Chung who is a former Uber Eats alum, says the capital will fuel its expansion into Chicago. That's the first location it'll move into outside of the Bay Area with its network of satellite kitchens that host 46 brands today. They offer a one-stop shop to drive training, cooking, and distribution for digital delivery. Take a listen. There's no cost for them to get started up front. Um, a lot of our restaurant partners really like that, and they make money on the first order to the last order. So it's, it's really thinking about how do we build this for a sustainable long-term future? Because that's clearly where the industry is headed. It's not just startups, though, that are getting into the virtual kitchen business. Big restaurant chains are too right now. Denny's rolling out two concepts virtually for burgers and sandwiches called the Burger Den and the Meltdown. There's also Brinker International, parent company of Chili's, launching its Just Wings. That's a virtual wing concept, which helped to boost same-store sales in recent months. And most recently, Chick-fil-A announcing its new virtual delivery concept, Little Blue Brand, selling wings, salads, and more in Nashville. That'll debut next year. Now we just need to get through ongoing shortages of chicken, sauces, ketchup, and more. But these kitchens could also be an answer to the ongoing labor shortage because, of course, they require less labor than a traditional restaurant. Deirdre, over to you. Yeah, it's a good point, Kate. Also, just more evidence of perhaps habits that many are expecting to stick post-pandemic. People keep ordering in. Thank you for that. Uh, coming up next, the winners and losers in streaming and what to make of Disney's miss on subs. That's next. Meantime, watch Peloton stock down about 2% this morning, but it's changed directions now up 1.5% following that recall. And even this year, though, it is down about 40%. We are back in just a moment. Plenty of analyst action this morning with calls on three of the earnings movers we've been talking about this hour. Dash gets upgraded at both Truist and Wells Fargo, buy and overweight respectively there, price targets of 185 and 170. Both saying the positive outlook the company guided to is too good to pass up. Would have been even better yesterday. Wells also likes Airbnb, says that stock uh, could reach the $200 mark after its own strong results. And then you've got Piper initiating Coinbase, overweight, 335 target, says Coin has a commanding position in the evolving crypto economy. You can get more on all of these notes on CNBC Pro online. We're back in a moment. Disney shares down after growth figures for Disney Plus did fall shy of expectations. But who's left to benefit? Uh, joining us this morning is Lazard's Telecom Media Entertainment Managing Director, our good friend Dennis Berman. Dennis, welcome back. Back, It's great to see you again. Hey, it's great to see you. I'll, I'll, when can we get back in the studio? I'm ready. Yes, we're going to do that soon. I know Lazard <laughs> has done a, a lot of work, actually a beautiful report on digital subs, streaming, churn, and basically where we're all going to settle out in the number of services we subscribe to. Is there a way to sum it up in a line or two? 
Yeah, look, uh, we are no doubt heading to a subscription-based economy. Uh, we're all taking in so many different subscriptions. We may not keep all of them, but there's no doubt, Carl, that we, we are uh, going to be taking on more of them. The, the gist of, of what we found and some of the work we've been doing is that these can be very attractive business models. They are perhaps not as attractive as software-as-a-service companies, and the valuations reflect that. The SaaS companies trading got 15, 17 times, and these digital consumer subscription companies trading trading at eight times. But really, when you come down to it, those that can produce the best scale, and, and that means internationally at this point, Carl, are, are really going to be the, the winners uh, as opposed to, to some of the ones that are smaller and are really having a hard time gathering uh, customers at a, at a fair price. But there's no doubt, Carl, this space is hot and uh, people are really reorienting their business models around a subscription-first approach, and you can see it in the markets right. today. Now, we know that uh, subs are driven by content and content's expensive and expenses pressure margins. How much of that is going to be a worry in the quarters to come as they keep trying to outdo each other? Uh, look, uh, that is that is exactly the point. And, and this is where scale begets scale and capital begets that scale. And so when you see with some of the truly global players, the ability to amortize this content across so many uh, different audience sets really is a competitive advantage. And frankly, the biggest companies stand to be at an advantage because they can accumulate that content. I think you will see some, some moderation on, on some of these uh, uh, IP uh, packages that, that will go for sale, whether it's, it's sports or, or entertainment. But, but overall, because the subscription, if the, if the churn can come down at a reasonable level, uh, the economics really start to kick off. So the best companies and the work we've done, Carl, they're keeping 70% of their customers in a given year. That means they're also losing about 30% of their customers every year, whereas the ones sort of at the mm. middle or, or near the bottom of the pack are losing almost half their customers. So more content creates less churn, creates more economic uh, opportunity for those for those uh, subscription-based companies. Yes, that's good news for content creators. Dennis, we got some breaking news. I'm going to have to cut it a bit short today, but we'll talk a lot more in the days to come. Okay. Dennis Berman. I look forward to check, it. Check in back in a minute. Now that breaking news, some developments on dark side. The group behind the Colonial Pipeline hack, Eamon Javers, has that for us. Eamon? John, yesterday we saw President Biden suggest that the U.S. government is going to respond to Darkseid. And today I can tell you that we are seeing reports that something very bad from Darkseid's perspective is happening to Darkseid. Two cybersecurity consulting firms giving reports just within the past half hour. Mandiant telling us that they see dark web posts that are claiming that Darkseid has now lost access to its infrastructure, including its blog payment and servers, and will be closing its service, that is, its hacking service. Mandiant also says that posts claim that decryptors will be provided for companies who have not yet paid. That is, if you've been hacked by Darkseid, this report is allegedly you might be getting out for free as a result of this. The cybersecurity firm Intel 471 is also reporting that posts claim that Darkseid has now promised to compensate outstanding financial obligations to its criminal affiliates by May 23rd. And posts also claim that funds from Darkseid cryptocurrency wallets have allegedly, allegedly been exfiltrated. That means their wallets were full 
and now they are not. Intel 471 also reporting that the cryptocurrency mixing service BitMix is reportedly inaccessible this week. BitMix is a mixing service that's important to hackers online because it allows them to mix their cryptocurrency and it's useful allegedly uh, in the laundering of cryptocurrency proceeds uh, from criminal activity on the web. So that's significant if that service is now no longer available to those hackers. All of this based on reports from the dark web. You have to bear all of this with a grain of salt in the sense that all of these people are criminals. They're all posting anonymously on the dark web. They tend to lie. Uh, But clearly something is going on with dark side right now. No indication if the U.S. government is behind all of but we did see that promise from President Biden yesterday, John. Yeah, makes me wonder, if this is true, does it mean that Darkseid has been busted or does it mean Darkseid is trying to look like it's been busted in order to clean everything up and, right. and, and get out of this? I guess that's, that's the question, Eamon, quickly. Yeah, exactly the right question. We do expect that these guys will skitter uh, and then maybe try to reconstitute under some other brand and some other format. But for right now, it looks like a disruptive event. Eamon, thank you for that. Uh, A couple of interesting swirling developments, uh, Eamon Javers, as we continue to watch not just uh, the the prospects for dark side, but the recovery of the colonial pipeline. Uh, Busy week, best two-day gain for the Dow since March 8th. Have a good weekend. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.